Howdy, everyone, and welcome to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma, the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And we've got a fantastic episode for you guys today and a little bit of a weirder one. Um, We actually don't know when this episode is going to publish. We're putting it in the hopper for a rainy day in case we're not able to record. But I have a feeling that a couple of things are still going to be live no matter when you're listening to this. First of all, uh, please go to our website, AmericanMoment.org. There you can find all sorts of information about the other things we have cooking, including Summit, a conference on American statecraft. There'll be an interest form or perhaps even an application there. So be sure to fill it out. We're really excited to bring everyone uh, to D.C. for our inaugural conference sometime in the fall. So please check that out. Nick, is there anything else they should be looking out for? Uh, well, like you said, I'm not sure when this is going to air. <laughs> so it definitely just to plug the link one more time, AmericanMoment.org. I'm sure we'll be announcing something really cool. We always are. That's right. So what are we doing that's a little bit weird or different this episode? Well, look, uh, we're very epistemically humble here at American Moment. We bring on a guest every week because we recognize that you don't want to hear us blabber on about our takes on things all day and every day. However, I will say that Nick specifically does have some genuine expertise about an area where he has been one of the most uh, entrepreneurial and productive leaders in D.C. on, and that's specifically the issue of the Arctic. And so this week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have Nick go around the table quite literally. Oh, look, there you go. He's standing up right now. And he's going to, uh, and I'm going to interview him about some of his experience running the Wallace Institute for Arctic Security, where he has been intimately involved with some of the key foreign policy debates when it comes to our policy on the Arctic region, uh, whether we should buy Greenland and a lot more over the last couple of years. The lighting's a little different from over here i'm not gonna lie like it it looks a little different hopefully my face still looks as good for those of you who aren't watching on youtube which you should because we we really do our best to make this a fantastic production every week nick has officially moved to the other side of the table so we're going to go to our episode with nick solheim the chief operations officer for american moment uh a co-founder of native and also the founder of the wallace institute for arctic security now Welcome to the podcast, stranger that I've never met before. Thanks for having me, loser. <laughs> <laughs> so, Nick, uh, we're doing something a little bit different this week. We wanted to uh, change up the formula, and I'm going to interview you. And the reason why is because uh, despite how much I rag on you, you're actually fairly accomplished, and you have a subject area expertise that people don't know a lot about. Uh, but before we talk about that, why don't you explain a little bit about how you got to the point where you're doing all of the things that you're doing now? We ask every guest what their Washington story is. What's yours? Oh boy. Well, everyone that's listening might want to pull up a chair. Uh, it's a it's a little long, but um, so I know I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but but I actually uh, I grew up in Honduras. Uh, well, kind of split between Minnesota and Honduras. Uh, my parents are missionaries down there, um, so you know grew up on the mission field. Uh, graduated homeschooled while in Honduras, um, and I moved back to the states in 2015. Uh, and started going to a small uh, Christian liberal arts university called the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Um, so, you know, spent some time going to school and, and, and trying to learn the craft. And it was a very expensive school, so spent a lot of time 
uh, working part-time jobs. So I, you know, all at once I was like running political campaigns, uh, opening a coffee shop in the morning and then like delivering for Jimmy John's over lunch and like taking 18 credits. It was insane. Um, so it was very difficult. Ended up getting a, uh, couple of full-time jobs. And the reason I say couple is because I'm, uh, not very good at being an employee. Uh, so if any of my former employers are listening to this, you know, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you, you know, so kind of my first job was as uh, a legislative assistant at the Minnesota House of Representatives. Um, I was a little big for my britches, as they say. Uh, and so I kind of came in with all these ideas and crazy things that I wanted to do. And they were like, no, no, no. We like want you to respond to letters that constituents send in um, and like file stuff. And then after a couple of months of that, they were like, yeah, you're not very good at this. So <laughs> we're just going to let you go. So after that, I got a uh, job as the communications director at the Republican Party of Minnesota, um, which I was uh, also um, not super good at. Uh, I probably should not have been selected for that role, but, uh, you know, worked at it for, for a couple months before, um, you know, because of just different styles and, and, and ideological differences, uh, ended up leaving. And then I decided, you know, it might be a good idea to get out of politics for a while. Like this, this, this is pretty rough. Uh, so I got a job for a, um, a real estate company in Minnesota where I first started to, to learn, um, you know, digital marketing. So I got, I got a job as a, um, what even was the title? It was like the marketing director for this small, real estate company and they primarily um you know did their business by uh, lead generation on facebook this used to be a lot easier than it is now facebook used to be a lot more permissible in the way that you could like target people and what kind of messaging you could use and stuff like that um so i got really good at that and um around that time uh uh max and john uh two guys that i work with now um, we're starting this company called native, uh, you know, doing like web development and digital marketing. And I was like, there is some real promise to this digital marketing stuff, especially in real estate. So I'm just going to jump ship. I left voluntarily this time, uh, <laughs> jump ship to go and, and, and join them, you know, and kind of starting this new business. Um, like I said, this is a long story, but we're, we're getting to the DC part. So, um, I just start kind of slinging projects with these guys. Uh, this is, we're in like 2017 now. And the next year I kind of spend slinging projects, you know, trying to close uh, new work, digital marketing accounts, web development. Um, and we win a political account, uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Johnson, who was running, uh, you know, for the Republican nomination for governor of Minnesota. And so, uh, you know, we started to realize through some of the results that he was getting for his campaign that there was a lot of promise in this, you know, in digital specifically for politics. And seeing as, you know, John and Max and, and some of the other folks on our team are like married and have kids, it was kind of like, all right, Nick, like you're the single dude. You go out to D.C., start selling these political projects, you know. So I come out here uh, beginning of 2018 and you know, uh, kind of start working in the in the political world yet again, um, running the D.C. office of Native, which is, you know, this web development and digital marketing agency selling selling projects. Um, so we get to oh, when 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 was the whole um, 
Greenland thing. Would that was like you know better than I do. Yeah, that was like it was like I I want to say it was like June of 2019. It's a big story, Wall Street Journal. It's like um oh, like Trump wants to buy Greenland. How crazy is that? And uh, for those of you that don't know, I've spent a lot of time um, in the Arctic region. I, I've led uh, some camping road trip tours in Iceland for a while. That was one of your four part-time jobs you were doing in college. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, I was doing a lot. Um, and so I had like some experience with this with this Arctic realm. And I was like, you know, I'll just I'll write something about this. Like, I don't really know anyone that that talks about this Arctic stuff, at least in my circle. So I'll just... I'll just write something for the Star Tribune, you know, which is the main paper in Minneapolis. So I wrote this piece, uh, which I now regret, called uh, <laughs> The Case Against Arctic Imperialism, arguing that we should not buy Greenland. Um, and it blew up because in that time where, um, you know, Trump wanted to buy Greenland, allegedly, um, there were really no no experts or anyone that had actually been like working on the Greenland thing consistently uh, here in Washington. So I was getting calls from, you know, staff members for members of Congress that I'd never spoken to before that like found my article and then found me on Twitter and like wanted to call me. And I was getting calls from journalists and and it was just kind of nuts. I was realizing that there was no one really doing anything about like America's role in the Arctic. And so, um, I was kind of like, well, if no one else is going to do it, like I know how to build a website and I know how to market stuff. So like, I'm just going to do that and I'm just going to start working on this Arctic stuff and meeting with members and just kind of like educating uh, folks on America's role in the Arctic. Uh, So, you know, started the the Wallace Institute for Arctic Security uh, that summer. I think it was in like August of 2019. And, uh, have been working on it ever since. So like I said, kind of a long story, but there so we go. you essentially founded a think tank at the age of 22 at the time? Let's see, 2019. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been 22. Which is absolutely wild because most of the people in this town who work on who have a particular area of expertise when it comes to a niche area of foreign policy have like PhDs and you were immediately more visible, more effective and more influential than all of them. Yeah, well it's really interesting um you know there are groups in in washington that um that work again i'll use the word allegedly on arctic policy uh because like many other think tanks in this town all they do is issue white papers you know they will they will show up to um you know deliver testimony at a committee hearing or something like that when summoned but they don't really do anything um, and you know, the, the Wallace Institute actually, uh, late last year would have been like October or so. We, we actually co-hosted a briefing on Arctic security with the house foreign affairs committee. Um, and you know, in talking with some of those folks, they were like, yeah, there, there are some of these like Arctic groups that have been in DC for 20 or 30 years. And none of them have ever asked to, to like host a briefing with us. Um, to talk about the Arctic and educate members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee on it. So, like, while there are people in D.C. that that do this stuff, um, do is a very light word. They write about this stuff, issue white papers, but actually, like, meeting with members and and meeting one on one and trying to educate people. There's there's none of that going on when it comes to the to the Arctic issue. 
that comports with everything we know about DC in general, just sclerotic institutions that aren't fit to task anymore, filled by people who are lazy, don't really want to work hard, and by consequence are ineffective. Makes you really wonder about all the other issues, uh, <laughs> whether the same thing is happening. So, you don't have to name names. <laughs> well, we, we will not. Um, <clears throat> funnily enough, this is actually how we met. We met at a happy hour in DC, I think in December of 20. 19 it would have been uh a little bit before covid and time flies yeah and and you were one of like a couple of people that i I was just visiting dc to see friends and you were one of a couple people i just ran into at this happy hour and i was like oh okay interesting another person i'll meet and then you mentioned the arctic stuff and i was like oh someone else who's a nerd about this very weird issue because i've been interested in this issue for a long time as well so i guess walk our listeners through why does the Arctic matter? Why shouldn't I think of it just like, you know, a random island in the Pacific Ocean or or any other, uh, you know, part of the world? Why why is the, the United States' strategic interest there important? And why is it a matter of global import as well? Mm. Yeah. So the, the, the foundation of, I guess, uh, America's case for a secure Arctic uh, is, I guess, to use like, you know, Yoram Hazoni's thing like nationalism is an issue of the heart and not of the mind like America is an Arctic nation we have Arctic territory in Alaska and there are around I think at last count like 18 or 19,000 Americans that live within the Arctic Circle Um, now comparatively with other countries like Russia you know Russia has about 3 million people uh, that live in the Arctic Circle it it may not seem like a lot but if you true truly believe that, um, you know, all American citizens are, um, you know, deserve like certain inalienable rights um, and, you know, deserve the same level of protection from the U.S. military and the federal government. Um, Like that's that's just the basis for all of it. Like we must make sure that those 19,000 people, even though that's a that's a relatively small number of people, they deserve the same level of security as the rest of the citizens of the United States. So like that's certainly the foundation for it. Um, aside from that, I mean, it's it's a political region with its own geopolitical challenges like any other. Um, so, you know, you've got, <clears throat> you know, like the Africa um with with China uh, like debt trapping uh, a lot of these countries and and building infrastructure that they can um, you know ultimately like repossess basically uh, to use for their own needs uh, the same exact thing isn't happening in the Arctic region but uh, there China is trying to invest in its Arctic infrastructure and it even calls itself a near Arctic nation despite you know, at its closest point being like, I think it's like a thousand miles from the Arctic Circle. Um, you know, they have observer status on the Arctic Council, which, you know, is is fine, I guess. There are, there are, there are other countries that, that do as well. Um, but uh, I think to consider China an Arctic nation uh, is, a, is a mistake. Um, and it's certainly, I mean, they currently have more icebreakers than we do. Like, and, and, you know, for the listeners who may not really understand exactly like what an icebreaker is or what it's for, um, these big ships with these like double bent, like steel hulls that are able to cut through, I think the, the, the polar star, our heavy polar security cutter can cut through 18 feet 
of solid ice. Um, and that's the only way that you can sail ships through the Arctic or Antarctic regions um, when there's ice coverage. So having those is super important to, you know, not just national security, but also like commerce, shipping, um, you know, if any fishermen get caught up there, uh, being able to rescue them in a timely manner and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, the main like geopolitical threat up there is, is well, and economic threat is, is China um, <clears throat> and their continued investment in the region. Um, but also we've kind of just due to lack of investment and lack of knowledge about the Arctic region, uh, we've kind of been relegated to like backbenchers, I guess, on Arctic policy. We we generally speaking, you know, allow the the Canadians and the Danish and the Norwegians to kind of lead the way on what we should be working on. And sometimes they lead us astray. Um, and so uh, really the, the, the case for investing in this region is it's a region that we have territory in. And if we truly believe America is the best country on earth, we we shouldn't like dominate it per se, but we should certainly be like the foremost leader, um, like we are in the other regions where we have our own territory. So what are the resources that make, say, China interested in the region? You know, they don't have a territorial interest to protect. So why do they care? <clears throat> what is it about the Arctic that is so appealing to China as it starts to expand via Belt and Road and other initiatives, um, and 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 why do they care? Yeah, so there there are two distinct things um, that China in particular is is interested in. Um, you know, so the the easy like low hanging fruit here for them is uh, rare earth mineral mining and refinement. Um, so that's their main interest in Greenland, uh, which is a which is a Danish territory. So you know, for for the listeners who don't know a ton about, um, you know, Greenland and, and basically how this whole, the U S should buy Greenland thing came about. Um, China has been attempting to invest in Greenland, you know, in, in building infrastructure in particular. So ports, airports, and that sort of thing, um, at either reduced cost or free in exchange for, uh, basically, unfettered rare earth mineral mining and refinement. Um, so the things that they use to make, um, you know, the chips that go in your iPhone um, and, you know, like other rare earth minerals that can be used to manufacture technology. Um, that is like their main interest in Greenland. And, you know, luckily, um, you know, due to pressure from uh, the State Department and Secretary Pompeo, uh, the Danish were able to step in and put a stop to that because they have ultimate authority over Greenland's foreign relations at the moment. Um so that's like one of their key interest areas is like making sure that they have those rare earth minerals and they can get them cheaply to continue to manufacture technology that everyone in the West uses. Um, and then the other is a little more complex. Um, so shipping routes is, is, is the short answer. So um, the, as we've seen with the, with the, with this ship that just got stuck in the Suez canal, what it was it called? The, the, ever is it the evergreen ever, the evergreen okay so uh you know a large amount of um you know china's traffic to the west goes through the suez canal and they recognize that that is a massive uh, geopolitical risk because uh, the united states also has its navy in the region as you know as well as our um, allies have a lot of military resources in the region. So if we ever do escalate to a tensor scenario, you know, economically or, 
um, or militarily, they recognize that we can just block off the Suez Canal, um, you know, with with our Navy, basically, and prevent them from shipping goods um, in the easiest way uh, to get them to other places. So what they've been working on is they've been uh, collaborating with the Russians uh, to ship goods through the NSR, which is the Northern Sea Route. It goes over Russia uh, in the same way that, you know, Western Europeans were searching for the Northwest Passage, you know, to be able to to get to Asia from the other direction. So uh, when they ship things through the Northern Sea Route, uh, they can shave anywhere up to 10 days off their shipping time, which, you know, every year potentially could save them trillions of dollars in in you know shipping costs and also like risk the 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 likelihood that russia could or would cut off their shipping routes is is minimal like it's highly unlikely that that would happen so you know not only are they looking for resources that they can mine and use right now but they also have a very long-term view of the Arctic and of the potential that it has, you know, as the, as the ice continues to melt in the Arctic region and, uh, it's easier to send ships earlier in the year. Uh, the amount of traffic that they send through, uh, the Northern sea route increases every year. And it's really based on longevity. Like they, they want to ensure that they are the world's number one training partner for decades to come. So, you mentioned uh, that as the ice continues to melt, the situation will continue to evolve. And that's that's a lot of why this is, in some ways, one of the most dynamic regions in terms of an evolving geopolitical landscape in the world is because as uh, as the Arctic ice melts, more and more of those shipping routes are open for larger parts of the year, and you don't need as specialized ships in order mm-hmm. to do it. What's the timeline <clears throat> that we're looking at on those uh, on those waterways opening up for for global commerce in a serious way. I mean, there are a lot of different estimates from a lot of different scientists that are funded by a lot of different like billion dollar nonprofit organizations that want to push their agenda. <laughs> so like the the very clear answer is like, who's to say? Like who knows? Um, what I will say is that we've we've certainly seen. Um, over uh, the last couple of years that that it is like days, if not weeks earlier, uh, you know, that the ice is melting every couple of years. Uh, it is it is pretty accelerated, um, you know, to give like the historical sample, uh, you know, talk about the Titanic. 1912, right, uh, sunk because it hit an iceberg, um, you know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean um, in, I believe it was like mid-April of that year. Uh, where the Titanic was sailing, there, there, there like aren't icebergs <laughs> like anymore. As, as far as I know, like there's just, there's not. Um, so, you know, this thing has a, has a, it changes pretty quickly. Uh, and I think anyone who has a very hard, you know, like, I don't want to say goal, has like a very like hard measurement of when this is going to happen is lying to you and is probably like funded by someone who wants you to be scared. Because we've seen like, you know, AOC talk about we have 10 years, guys, 10 years left. And it's like, truthfully, you know, we don't know when any of this stuff is going to happen or like what the actual effects are going to be. But it is happening right now, like regardless of whether we can do something about it or not. Um, So 
I understand this is kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but um, it's it's changing every year. And it is already like in the last decade, uh, like the ice is melting two or three weeks earlier than it used to. So this issue ends up being a, a gateway into all sorts of black pills about the way that the American regime operates at the national level. The classic example being icebreakers. First of all, you explained already what an icebreaker is. How many do we have and how many do the other parties at hand have? So we technically have two. Um, and the reason I say thousand, hundred, two. Um, <laughs> so and by the way, mind you, that's not just for the Antarctic or that's not just for the Arctic. It's for the Antarctic as well, which which are on opposite sides of the globe. Yes. <laughs> yes. And like months of travel time between. So the the two that we have, uh, we have a what's called a uh, medium polar security cutter, which is I think it was built in 2006. It is the U.S. Coast Guard's Healy. Um, and that's the most recent one that, that we've built. Um, it's capable of cutting, I think, up to I think it's like seven to nine feet of ice or something like that. So uh, generally pretty much only good for the Arctic region. Uh, the the stuff that the U.S. Coast Guard needs to do in Antarctica uh, requires something a little more heavy duty, which is why we have uh, the heavy polar security cutter, the Polar Star, um, which is capable of cutting, like I said earlier, you know, like, uh, like 18, you know, 19, 20 feet of ice. Um, and that is usually gone for at least six months a year because they have to... Uh, cut their way to a um, to a station, uh, an American station in Antarctica to, to resupply our mission there. Um, so, you know, it's usually gone there for a while. And then when it gets back to the States, it's usually in dry docks for a couple months. So like effectively at any given time, we have one. Um, Russia, to, to give a comparison, has, I think at last count, 60. Um, they have a lot more Arctic territory than we do and a lot more people that live there. So it's like everyone wants to panic about the, you know, Russians having like 60 icebreakers, but they also have a lot more infrastructure and a lot more people up there than we do. Uh, the, the primary concern comes from, you know, countries like China, which have, I think they have three or four now. Uh, they just launched another one a couple weeks ago. So maybe four or five. Um, and they, uh, like they're they're not an Arctic country, and they have more than we do. Um, and they're know, building more, right? Like they have a bunch yes, under construction. Yes, they're actively building more. Um, and there are a lot of countries, um, you know, Norway, Sweden, Finland. I think even Estonia. I think Estonia has more than we do, and they're not even an Arctic country either. Um, so yeah, it's it's obviously very you know concerning that we've allowed other countries much smaller and and sometimes like less technologically advanced than us. Um, have better, um, you know, icebreaking equipment than we do. I actually think South Africa is another good example. I think they have three uh, because, you know, obviously they're in the Southern Hemisphere, so they're close to Antarctica. They do some scientific research there. Uh, I think they might actually have more icebreakers than we do. That's don't incredible. fact check me on that. But So why don't we have more? What have been the barriers to constructing more? Because Look, I mean, the American military is very well funded. We have lots of boats and planes and, uh, and and all sorts of other military equipment. Why has this, you know, seemingly important geostrategic 
uh, area of interest not gotten the same level of attention. Yeah, I think there are, are a ton of contributing factors. Um, so one, you know, is kind of a a uh, geopolitical focus on environmentalism instead of security. So, you know, as we covered on our episode with Micah Meadowcroft, like, um, you know, the environment and particularly the American environment is important to protect. Um, but so is our national security and always making sure that we kind of weigh those things hand in hand. Um, and, you know, people like John Kerry really don't do that sort of thing. Like they just really focus on, um, on like the environmentalism stuff and global warming and they don't really do any focus on, um, you know, national security or anything like that. So that's, so that's one is we've kind of like the Arctic's like pet issue has been climate change. The polar bears like have nowhere else to go, you know, and we haven't really been focusing on it from polar bears. Some of the most aggressive human murdering animals on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Polar bears will eat your face and your children. They are not cute. Yeah. I I will respond with a, the case for polar bears, uh, article soon, but, um, (laughs) But no, so like that's one reason. Uh, I think another is, you know, it, Congress's just general delegation of responsibility to like doing anything that's not tax cuts. Um, so it, like we see this with a ton of things like there are there are things that don't get updated for for decades. Like there are FCC regulations, you know, that like there are things governing the Internet right now that were created before the internet existed and it's just like you know congress and the administration just like governance in general is is really far behind the times on these issues because they would rather delegate the responsibility um to waxing poetic about climate change instead of actually doing something um and then kind of a, a consequence of that and kind of the last point here is that um since we don't do this sort of thing anymore um, we've lost the capability to do so. So, you know, we talk a lot about, um, you know, restoring manufacturing, uh, and stuff like that to the United States on this podcast. Um, and simply put, we barely have a capacity to build, um, Polish security cutters anymore. So even though, you know, the federal government says that there must be a bidding process for all things that, um, you know, get built for the U S military, uh, as far as I know, there is only one company in the United States that is currently capable and the only one that has really for the last couple of decades um, of building Polish security cutters. Just 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 one company. Um, and it's not the main thing that they do. The main thing they do is build other ships and they also just happen to dabble in this. Um, do they build those for other countries? I'm actually not sure. I don't think so because I would assume they're probably not the best at it. Um, because again, like I said, it's not what they it's not what they specialize in. They do it because I think if they stopped doing it, there would be you know nobody else in the United States to do it. Which is how you end up with you know in the in the in the president's um, defense budget, you know, where they're talking about. So President Trump, uh, before he left office, you know, had a, had another defense budget and he called for a massive investment in our Polish security cutter program. Um, and one of the lines in there that, that ended up getting added was, you know, we have all this money to like appropriate it. Here's how long it should take, blah, blah, blah. 
And if we literally can't build them or find someone to do it to the specifications that we want, we could also appropriate money to lease these from other countries. So basically, you know, what the White House was laying the groundwork for was, you know, if we wanted to go to the Canadians and say, hey, you nice eight icebreakers you have there, mayhaps we have two for money. <laughs> um, and, you know, there is there is uh, there are a couple other countries that we could go to. That's just an example. But like literally we have we've lost the capacity to do this sort of thing. And right now. You know, there's they're they're laying the keel for a uh, polar security cutter right now uh, because the one, the heavy that we currently have is uh, 20 years past its expiration date. Uh, I saw a news story the other day; they're literally running out of parts to like fix it. Um, so they're laying the keel for another one. They're saying that it'll take, um, on average, four to five years to construct one at a time. Uh, meanwhile, during World War II, the United States was charged with. Um, you know, protecting Greenland and Iceland, uh, we churned out seven in four years. Like, un like under FDR, we were able to build seven Polish security cutters, not as technologically advanced as what we have now. We were able to build seven of them in four years uh, to protect, by the way, other countries, not ours. And we can't even build one in like under four years now. Getting to FDR, uh, explain why the Wallace Institute for Arctic Security is called what it is. Oh man, I'm gonna get so many hate tweets for this. Um, <laughs> I was already getting, uh, you know, I, I've gotten, a, I've gotten a lot of hate for this uh, from from folks for a long time. But uh, so the Wallace Institute is named after a often forgotten vice president. Uh, yeah, a lot. Who is it? Who is it that you brought up earlier that you thought it was? I, I just jokingly said it was named after George Wallace. Oh, that is okay. not true. I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It is not George Wallace. Uh, it's named after uh, Henry Agard Wallace, who was um, FDR's second vice president. Um, and it's actually not because of, um, you know, the fact that all these uh, icebreakers got built during World War Two. I actually don't know like how much Wallace had to had to you know, play in that. Um, the reason I actually called it that is I read, you know, we should add his, we should add his biography to Amcan and I'm going to send Jake a note, note about that. <laughs> I'm forgetting what it's called, but I'd read this really good biography about him. Um, I just finished it when this whole Greenland thing happened and kind of the, the, the key pivotal point of Wallace's career. And there, you know, there are a lot of things, um, correctly that people, like criticize him for he he was he could be sometimes naive in in you know dealing with the soviets and stuff like that like all of that is true um but he had this one really good speech uh that was called the century of the common man um i should actually add jake i should have jake add that youtube video of that speech to amkin we'll we'll talk about it later but um so in this speech you know he talks about after the end of world war ii uh he says you know what a lot of people in Washington want to come out of this war is a century of economic and military imperialism. Um, that's what everyone in D.C. wants right now. And what the world actually needs is what he calls the century of the common man. So, you know, of the laborer, both in <clears throat> the Soviet Union and in the United States, um, of the laborer, of the of the of the farm worker, um, you know, of the citizens in, in countries in Africa who have been ravaged by war. Uh, his his main focus was that, you know, the 
the rest of the 20th century and going into the 21st century uh, would not be focused on military and economic imperialism, but would instead be focused on, you know, advancing the issues and causes of the common man. Now, I didn't really realize this before I just started talking about it, but this was kind of the beginning of like my brain turning towards the kind of politics that and policies that American moment supports and is, you know, training people to advocate for. Um, I read and and watched the the speech. It's like five minutes long. Um, and I said, yeah, like, why didn't that happen? What, why didn't we care? Um, you know, about the issues that were that were plaguing the common man. Um, and so, yeah, it was it just really resonated with me. And I was like, no one really knows who this guy is or like remembers him. And so I'm just going to name my thing after him. What's the worst that can happen? And it turns out the worst that can happen is like just people tweet mean things at me and they do that anyway. So, um, yeah, I also, by the way, just one kind of like side note after I read this biography, I, um, <clears throat> I was living in Navy Yard at the time and I was like looking for a new apartment and, uh, Wallace lived in, this was before like vice presidents lived in the Naval Observatory. I think Spiro Agnew was the first one <laughs> to live in the vice president's residence, uh, at the Naval Observatory. But um, Wallace lived in the uh, the Wardman Park building, which is, you know, very high end um, condos now uh, up in Woodley Park in northwest D.C. across from the zoo. Um, and he walked when he was secretary of agriculture, he walked from there to the Department of Agriculture and back every day. So for those of you that, you know, don't know the geography of D.C., that's like 10 miles round trip every day. And then sometimes, which is roughly how much you walk every day. Yeah, it's true. And, <laughs> and this was how I got started on that. Like I was like, okay, cool. He lived in this super cool neighborhood and he walked down to the hill every day. I'm going to do that. And so I moved in to an apartment building across the street that was much cheaper than the million dollar <laughs> condos that are in that building now. Um, and moved into the apartment building across the street and walked down to my office close to the hill every day. It, that was actually part of how I got not fat. Yeah. It's because I walked so far every day. Now, I don't throw like boomerang on the banks of the Potomac like he used to, but I like to say that I've learned a lot from him kind of emulating his lifestyle. He even did that as like vice president too. Like he would like walk down. Um, I don't know if he was like in the White House or in the executive office building or what, but like he would walk down there. Uh, I think most of the time without like any secret service detail or anything, like would just walk down there on his own. That's and FDR rewarded him by kicking him off the ticket. But well, anyway. many such cases. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess the, the final question I have for you is, uh, should we buy Greenland? <laughs> Boy, this is some great water, Sir. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> fine. When Nick talks about this, it causes a national security incident. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to be... Um, you know, uh, limited in what I can say about this because I, I have had, uh, ongoing conversations with people in who are still currently like there, there are people who are careers, um, you know, in the administration, uh, that I've worked with. So I don't want to give too much of their stuff away. Um, I don't think we should outright buy Greenland. Uh, and I get, it's a meme. It's funny. And if you, tweet I want a Trump hotel, in, <laughs> if, in you, Nook. <laughs> if, if, if you tweet by Greenland memes at me, like I promise I will laugh and give you a like. I don't necessarily think still that it's like the best solution. Uh, I think it's a lot more nuanced. Um, 
Now, if we were to acquire Greenland, <laughs> say we say we didn't, you know, talk, annex. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, annex is also not the word that I would use. But <clears throat> really, the the actual logistical way forward uh, for Greenland, uh, if it did want to become part of the United States, um, there has been a growing independence movement in Greenland, which by the way is a small country. Like for those of you that don't know, it's like 55,000 people. There's like not a lot there. Um, not a lot of people there. Um, so basically, uh, they've kind of had this growing independence movement for years. Um, you know, it's mainly the upper echelons of like Greenlandic society who, you know, are, are mainly, um, the, the, you know, Danish that have been administering the government and, um, you know, their descendants and that sort of thing. But it's basically, you know, in in how the uh, culture is now, they're saying that, oh, Denmark still having Greenland as a territory is imperialism and it's evil. Therefore, we're going to be independent. Um, the only problem with that is that Greenland receives a, a, a stipend from Denmark every year that is, I think at last count, like 58% of their GDP. <laughs> so if they like leave, it's um, like Alaska in that sense. It's basically a welfare state. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with that, but okay. Uh, but on the Greenland issue, um, <clears throat> you know, basically the way forward for them would be, uh, that they have an independence referendum, uh, with a couple of options, you know, we stay with Denmark, we become independent, like completely independent, which would likely destroy their economy, um, their modern economy. I, they would be fine. Like people would still be able to feed themselves. Um, but like their modern economy where they, they're wanting to do trade with modern countries and stuff like that would, would take a massive hit. Um, <clears throat> and then the third option would be, we would like to explore other options for ownership, <laughs> which is which is basically like leaving the door open to uh, becoming an administered territory, but with more political freedom uh, than Denmark currently offers. Uh, so the main draw here would be for for the Greenlandic people would be offering U.S. citizenship. Um, and this isn't like some sort of gimme where it's like, hey, if we do this, you know, immigration agreement with Mexico, like a million of them can come here. Like it's literally... 55,000 people. And of those 55,000 people, like maybe 2000 would come, you know, but like basically making them citizens, allowing them travel to the United States to move here if they want. Um, and you know, basically exchange and education. Um, and so that would be kind of the selling points for the Greenlandic people. Um, and then for the United States, obviously like rare earth mineral refinement, oil, uh, extension of our exclusive economic zone under uh, the um, the UN Convention on Law, the Sea Charter, um, you know, fishing rights, I guess. <laughs> like, there, there is a whole list of reasons, like, why we should want Greenland. Um, I am mainly concerned with trying to find a way to do it that is equitable for the Greenlandic people and also for the United States. Like, there's no reason that there are a lot of reasons why they should want to be a part of the United States and we should show them that. And if that's the way that they decide to move, um, 
I think that would be really fantastic. And I would also like to become Emperor of Greenland. One day, so, <laughs> I was going to say that you're being very diplomatic and then you said that. So I guess not. Uh, I remember realizing just how serious you were about this Arctic stuff when um, before I moved to D.C., when we were doing one of our early trips for American Moment, I was staying with you at your apartment because I had no job <laughs> um, and uh, and I did not want to pay for a hotel. And you wake up at 6 a.m. and listen to is it? Finnish TV, Icelandic TV. Uh, it's um, it's NRK. It's like the uh, national Norwegian channel. Uh, they so they do a nightly show um, called Dagsravian, and it's like their like nightly news. Yeah. And so after it airs, I watch the previous day's news in Norwegian the next day. And you know, it's mostly like it's like fun to listen to because it's it's like listening to your local news channel. It's like local woman catches really big fish you know it's like a lot of it's yeah. really good feel good yeah stuff. it's norway there's not that much happening but the point being is that you speak the language and you speak a whole bunch of others what are the languages that you speak and insult me in one of them i'm not going to insult you in any uh i don't want uh archives of this showing up later uh but you know english and and and, and spanish are kind of my primaries you know spanish coming from you know living in honduras for so long and then i was kind of like the way that i learned spanish was through um was through immersion so like i was the only white kid for like 100 miles in honduras so i had like no other it, i was 11 and I could either talk to my parents uh, <laughs> or like, you know, spend time learning a language with other people. So like all I knew how to say was, como se dice, which is like, how do you say? And I would just like point at stuff <laughs> and act stuff out. And it's not like a lot of trial and error. But, you know, if you if you, you know, spend enough time kind of immersed in something. So anyway, I'm getting away from the point here. So in the last couple of years, you know, I've been able to build up a pretty good um proficiency in english spanish um norwegian danish and icelandic um finnish is a whole other animal entirely because even though it's like it's close to scandinavia and there well it's a part of scandinavia but and there's some overlap it's actually a finno-ergic language so it's like the root is completely different um so that one's that one's a little more uh, difficult for me and then i've been trying for years I think it's actually in my bio on the website. I've been trying for years to learn uh, Kalalasut, which is the uh, native language spoken in Greenland. And I got to say, there's just a real lack of material <laughs> out there. Like there's there's not a lot for me to be able to immerse myself in. Um, but really, like if I if I was to give like informal advice to anyone listening that wants to learn a language, um, like start your day with it. Um, and that applies to anything, actually. Like if you want to learn anything, like start your day with it and spend an hour doing it. You know, uh, it's been listening to Norwegian news um, or Icelandic music or, um, you know, reading books about presidents or about, you know, reading the Federalist Papers, whatever, like spend the first hour of your day doing it without your phone. Turn your phone off. Um, don't have any distractions. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I learned. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast that you are always on, Nick. And uh, hopefully this was a, a nice change of pace for our guests. Thank you.
All right, Nick, come back on this side of the table, I guess. <laughs> Once again, every week after we have our guest on, in this case, he's still here, we like to talk about a few pieces on Amcanon. Uh, one of the things we talked about a lot in this episode was China and its relationship with the Arctic region and what its aspirations are. Uh, I think that very often people tend to caricature what China exactly wants. You know, there's a lot of, frankly, kind of silly sounding language about the imperial dragon rising again and, and some some really silly dialogue that happens in D.C. and elsewhere about the China issue. And so we thought that we'd point out what exactly it is that China's leaders say that they want. There's a piece that's on Amcanon uh, that was published at Palladium magazine, one of the coolest, most interesting magazines out there talking about the future of governance. And it is Xi Jinping in his own words. It's a translation of one of the seminal speeches he gave uh, to the Chinese Communist Party uh, a few months ago, I believe, or may, may have even been a couple years at this point. We highly recommend you check it out, uh, along with all sorts of other pieces on there, because, look, may as well go to the source material when it comes to these questions of geopolitics and grand strategy, and uh, you certainly don't need to hear from us what we think uh, these leaders have to say when they have committed it to writing and to the spoken word themselves. Nick, what did you want to talk about? You know, I was going to talk about this national interest article, but now that I'm remembering what I was talking about, the, the Amcanon assignment is going to be that speech, the Century of the Common Man. Henry A. Wallace. We're going to put it on Amcanon and we're going to let everyone watch it. So that is my Amcanon piece for the week. Well, be sure to check that out and all the rest of what we have at AmericanMoment.org slash Amcanon and check out the rest of what we have on our website. You can find us on social media at MMoment.org on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler, and probably a bunch of other platforms by the time this is published. Uh, once again, our website is AmericanMoment.org. And please be sure to check out everything that we have going. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.